Welcome to Flight Safety Detectives. Here, hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation experts, talk about all things aviation safety. This podcast is brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-241-7891. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up on the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, John. Hello, Todd. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And uh, I've just finished uh, some brain damage. I was in trial two weeks ago. I had a deposition yesterday, only to have to brain dump all of the stuff from the depth I had yesterday to uh, heading to trial again next week. So uh, this is always the highlight when uh, I really don't have to think anything about aviation safety. I just get to shoot my mouth off and talk about it. So uh, it's good to see you both. And uh, we do have a special guest that we will get to uh, joining us today. But before we get there, I'll let you two guys make some opening remarks. And of course, John, you got to bring us into the show with our sponsor announcement. Well, before I get to the sponsor announcement, I'm hoping one of these days that you get found guilty in court. <laughs> and I don't have to chase all over the Yeah, yeah, yeah. I opened myself up. Podcasts. I opened myself up. The, nobody realizes that today is day five that I've been chasing you to get you on to do a program. So it's, I would I know. love it if you got found guilty and locked up for six months. <laughs> Make it real easy. Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I want to remind everybody that today's show is being brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Avemco Insurance. If you need any kind of general aviation insurance, whether it be hull loss, liability, if you're a CFI and you need uh, liability insurance, whatever it is in general aviation, give Avemco a call, 888-879-879. 0389 and uh, give them a call for whatever reason. They love to talk aviation. They're good people. Todd and I spent a lot of time with them in uh, Oshkosh and we're very impressed with their knowledge. And, uh, and I also feel sorry for them because they insure Greg. So <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, but that's another the, story for another day. That's right. I'm the best wrist I'll ever have. So right now, because your airplane's on the ground. That's right. <laughs> I am their best risk. <laughs> so how you doing today, Todd? I can't complain too much. Bright and sunny here in Boston. That'll change. Yeah, except uh, too bad your Red Sox weren't in the World Series. <laughs> Well, it's double bad because I grew up as an Astros fan, having grown up in uh, I'm San I'm glad that they aren't in the World <laughs> Series anymore, either. <laughs> I think three quarters of the country at least has that same feeling. That's right. <laughs> well, we are, we're, we're very fortunate today to have a, a special guest with us. Uh, I'm honored to call him a friend, a colleague, and sometimes an adversary, but he's a friendly adversary in some of the work we do. Uh, we are fortunate enough to have uh, a world famous guy, a five-time shuttle astronaut, um, uh, aviator extraordinaire. I mean, it would take us this whole show to read all the accolades about our friend Hoot Gibson, and uh, I will—I'll I'll embarrass him throughout this interview. But he uh, is—he is, uh, is a five-time shuttle astronaut. He was a naval aviator. He flew F-4s and F-14s. What do you got now, Hoot, about 15, 20,000 hours of total time with all the flying and the commercial flying and things you did? Well, gee, Greg, not not quite 15,000. I'm at about 14,700 okay. uh, at this point. And I think, uh, you know, I never used to know how many airplanes until Air and Space Magazine asked me, how many different airplanes have you flown? And, and I said, well, I don't know. And they said, well, We'll make us a list. So I made a list, <laughs> oh golly, about six years ago. Yeah. And I've kept it up. But I have flown um, just over 160 different types of airplanes, helicopters, gliders, and so on. And uh, of course, uh, not only are you well known as a uh, space shuttle astronaut, but of course, a, uh, a racer. 
you formally formula formula one God, i can't talk today formula one racing um with uh, with little airplanes and then on the unlimited class with uh, the larger airplanes you flew what a p51 modified p51 and a uh hawker sea fury right at uh at, at um at you know? reno yeah right. I'm, I'm brain yes. dead after this deposition yesterday <laughs> it'll do it to you oh yeah depositions are that way yeah and uh yeah that's correct greg i i uh i was lucky enough i only raced reno one year in the formula ones but i had raced uh regional races in texas for about five years in my own formula one racer and then Golly, that that experience got me in the door, and I got asked to race uh, a Hawker Sea Fury uh, that was called Riff Raff, and that was the first time that airplane had ever been raced. I raced it ten years altogether, and then raced uh, another Sea Fury, the fastest Sea Fury that ever ran Reno, race number two thirty two, and then that that got me into getting to fly Strega, um, like you say, highly modified P fifty one Mustang. Uh, probably about the fastest airplane out there running around the race course. And, and lucky me, 2015, I got to win the unlimited championship in that airplane because that airplane is so wonderfully fast. Well, good. Well, I know that uh, Todd and John uh, will have questions. I'm going to dominate this interview though, because <laughs> I got, I mean, we, we can go on forever. Um, but it's nice to see that uh, you are in your man cave, which has been um, happily renamed to the ready room. There it is, the ready room. Yeah, which one of my one of my fighter pilot buddies was here and looked at it, and I guess at the time uh, we'd been calling it a man cave, and he said, "No, no, no, no." He said, "You know, really, it's a ready room. This is like the squadron ready room on the aircraft carrier." Well, great. Well, no, I mean, it's impressive just uh, from behind you. And uh, I know that you're an avid radio controlled airplane flyer like myself and Todd. And, um, you know, looking at those airplanes, you know, I can't wait to visit you again, because uh, just don't look when I'm walking out the door, because you might be missing some of those airplanes. So. <laughs> you're just going to provide space for some additional things to hang up. That's right. Well, I know that uh, you flew your way through the Navy and uh, were an accomplished pilot. Uh, if, you, if anybody that's uh, listening or watching our podcast, you really want to know about Hoot and all of his accomplishments, all you have to do is go to Wikipedia and it goes on and on and on about all the, the magnificent things this man has done. And like I said, I'm, I'm honored to, uh, to call him a friend and a colleague um, because uh, you know, every time we're together, I learned something, a little, you know, something new. And that's a good thing from an aviation standpoint. And um, I know that, you know, after you, uh, you flew your way through the Navy, you, you were interested and in, in were accepted into the astronaut program. Can you just give us a little background about how that then developed and how you then ended up being a five-time shuttle astronaut? Well, I had wanted to be an aeronautical engineer and a test pilot from the time I was about 10 years old, because that's what my dad was. And I'm, I've been fond of saying that if I've done well as an aviator, it's because he taught me how to fly. Mm -hmm. And so it had been my goal to be a test pilot and to fly jet fighters. And uh, fortunately, I got accepted to go through Navy test pilot school, that in conjunction with having had experience in two different fleet fighters, the, as you mentioned earlier, Greg, the F-4 Phantom and the F-14 Tomcat. Um, I had all the qualifications that NASA was looking for. And uh, so I got selected in the very first space shuttle class way back in 1978. And that was also the first class to include women and minorities. And so we were a, golly, we were a very diverse class. And that's where I met my future wife, Ray Seddon, yeah, who was one of the first it, six women astronauts. And I could appreciate and, the fact that she is the smartest rocket scientist in your house. So <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Uh, so anyway, she and I met in 1978 when, when we showed up for selection. And then she and I had a bet. Who was going to fly first? 
You know, we, we had not had women astronauts previously. And so I was betting she was going to fly first because mm. she's certainly a whole lot better looking, <laughs> uh, a whole lot, whole lot more charming, a whole lot more talented. And so we had a bet and the bet was 50 cents and a jelly donut as to who was going to fly first. Mm. And uh, I lost because I flew first. There you go. But, uh, which which really surprised me. I was sure she was going to go first. But anyway, I flew in 84. Uh, she flew in 85. I flew in 86. And then we had the Challenger accident. I was the only launch of 86 that came back. And uh, and then I flew in 88. She flew in 91. I flew in 92. She flew in 93. And I flew in 95. So between us, we flew all five of the space shuttles that went to space. And uh, so that, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, was my, uh, my spaceflight career. Well, well rather you know, than being two ships that pass in the night, I guess it was two rockets that pass in the night, you know, for you and your <laughs> wife. So, um, well, that's well, who, great. Who, your wife will always have a, a warm spot in my heart because of her book that... Uh, that she signed that I gave to my granddaughter who uh, was fascinated with airplanes, but she's right now in medical school. And I'm not hundred percent sure how much the book had to do with it, but I do know she read it and uh, she decided she wanted to go to medical school and she's in there right now. And we'll see where that goes. Oh, that's, that is just excellent. And of course the fact that, that Ray, my wife uh, is an MD uh, that, that played a big role in getting her selected to be one of the first six women. And, and I'm sure that was part of it, but there was another part of it too. I'm sure they had lots of doctors that applied for the 1978 selection. They probably had lots of female doctors that applied. I'll bet they didn't have very many female doctors who also had a private pilot's license. Ah, there you go. So that was another one of the things that said she knows what flying is about. She understands flying. She is a pilot. And so I'm sure that, sure that played a big role. I'm sure she is the best pilot in the house, too. <laughs> uh, you were right. <laughs> you were going to be sending barbs my way the whole time. You're doing a great job Absolutely. of it, too, Greg. Absolutely. You're in the hot seat, my friend. That's right. <laughs> you know, and Todd, jump in here because I know you have some questions, but, you know, we, I, I want to get into the safety aspect of, uh, of not only the times that you were flying and some of the trials and tribulations that NASA went through, especially after Challenger and then uh, Columbia, because you actually flew the Columbia shuttle. Um, do I remember that right? Well, yes. Actually, Greg, I flew both of those, both yeah. of the shuttles that we lost. My first launch was aboard Challenger. And then my second launch was aboard Columbia. And so I flew both of those. And yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. And I had, I had some experience in safety within NASA as well. And, and I want to get into that because, uh, you know, when you and I had a chance to chat, we were at a wreckage inspection or something, we, we got into this discussion. And I found some of those elements, you know, quite interesting and fascinating, but it also raised some concerns about what's going on now with the commercial space program with uh, Blue Origin and of course Virgin and, uh, and SpaceX, especially putting, you know, <clears throat> not necessarily trained people as far as being an astronaut, but just passengers, if you will, putting them up into a space environment. And, uh, and so I really want to get into that, but I know, Todd, that you had a couple of questions that, uh, that you wanted to pose to who? Oh, one, especially that addresses this, is uh, the general topic of aeronautical decision-making, not just the pilot in the cockpit, but even entire organizations. Now, if you have been, uh, people in the audience, if you've been following the commercial space activity the last few years, you have Blue Origin, you have SpaceX, and of course you have... Uh, the um, Branson, not Branson, uh, the, the Virgin, Virgin uh, folks. And let's just say they have three very different approaches to commercial space. And as you said, Greg, people getting on board as passengers, paying passengers or free passengers, as it may be, some of these folks have a lot of money. That's why they're there. But it doesn't mean that, that money 
and that success in other realms of their lives mean they're making good decisions, either about their own personal risk or about the system as a whole. And given what NASA has learned over the years with uh, their accidents going back to the 1960s, and given what we've already seen in the commercial space business, what advice can you give, not just to the folks at the head of those organizations, but anyone who is considering being a part of one of these commercial launches? Well, of those three, Todd, that you've mentioned, um, of those three, one of them has been very closely scrutinized by NASA and that's SpaceX. And that's because as we all know, they have been launching our astronauts. Finally, we're launching our own astronauts to the International Space Station. It was nearly 10 years that we were paying the Russians a lot of money to carry our astronauts to the International Space Station. So it's wonderful that we're back somewhat in the driver's seat now uh, with the commercial contract with, uh, with SpaceX. And they have been very successful. It isn't like they haven't had some losses though. Fortunately, not people, but space is difficult. Space is challenging. And now the other two, um, Blue Origin and, and Virgin Galactic, uh, they have not had scrutiny from NASA or the the, oh golly, I guess the microscope that uh, NASA puts into everything that you do. And I would hope, I would hope that they will pay a lot of close attention to little things along the way. And that's one of the things that we were guilty of with the Challenger disaster and also with Columbia was that we had repeated instances of things that weren't right. And somehow they got swept, not quite under the rug, but I'll tell you, one of the things that happened, particularly with the Challenger accident was, we were burning O-rings somewhat routinely. And so the attitude was, okay, well, gee, we burned some O-rings on this last launch. Yeah, okay, we see that all the time. Hmm. Okay, well, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's not okay. And so pay attention to close calls, and incidents because they're talking to us and frequently they don't go away by themselves. They just get better. Now with, with Challenger, we opened one anomaly and it was O-ring erosion. And then each time we had a subsequent event, we just listed it under that one event. So you didn't see that we had this big history. I burned O-rings on both of my first two launches. We didn't see necessarily that, holy smokes, look how often this is happening. So that's something that I hope they will pay a lot of attention to. But again, they are subject to FAA scrutiny. Uh, the other two, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, but they're not scrutinized by NASA. Well, there's, a, there's another difference I'd like to point out here, the issue of transparency. Now, maybe it didn't happen in real time, but certainly after the fact with the Rogers Commission and the other very uh, heavily uh, funded um, research into those major accidents, it eventually came out that this was happening. There was volumes of data and information that eventually came to light that allow us in this current era to paint a very, very detailed picture of the sequence of events. I don't see that personally happening with not necessarily SpaceX, but with uh, Virgin and Blue Origin at this point, if there were to be an event, could we even come close to having the kind of transparency and paper trail that NASA had? You bring up a really good point, Todd, and I'm, I'm not at all surprised. That's why you're here. Um, there, was, there was an attempt to cover up Challenger. Uh, I read Alan McDonald's book and I got to know Alan McDonald. He was the engineer from Thiokol, the booster, solid rocket booster engineer that spoke up in a meeting of the Rogers Commission and mentioned that, hey, you know, we launched Challenger, but we, the engineers, did not want to launch that day. And Mr. Rogers turned around and said, have him come up here and said, if, 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 what he, if, if I understood what he just said, this is going to be in litigation for a long time. Mm. NASA and Thiokol uh, management tried to suppress it. They tried to cover it up. 
And that was one of the hard lessons that came out of this was, I hate to say it as well, out of Columbia. We launched Columbia and we saw something hit the left wing of Columbia and the engineers in the trenches were very concerned. And that concern didn't get elevated up to the upper levels of management. And we might've been able to do more for the crew of Columbia that we didn't do, but we didn't do it. And those concerns and, and transparency, golly, you, you hit the nail right on the head. Now, I think we had, well, I know we did. We had a little bit of an incident with Virgin Galactic on, on their last launch. Yeah. Uh, they spilled outside their area and uh, they had a red light in the cabin. And I'm not sure that that thoroughly got elevated the way it should have. And I think they, uh, I think they fired one of their pilots because he wanted to elevate it. So I, yeah. I don't know that we've necessarily learned our lesson all around. Well, who you, you and I, you know, and of course, John and Todd, but you and I are actively involved every single day in the work that we do um, with, re with regard to being expert witnesses. We're dissecting accidents. Uh, you've got that background. I've got that background. When you look at the feedback loop you were talking about, some of the issues that you know, would have, you know, started to come up with Challenger and, you know, how strong was your voice as an astronaut? at that time to management. I know when I was at the NTSB, you'd express some issues and that kind of stuff. And next thing you know, they'd go into the management ether and never see the light of day. And then somewhere down the road, it would come back to haunt you. Um, and you'd be wondering what happened and why didn't anybody take action? Did the astronauts, especially maybe on a debrief after the flight expressing issues, did they get resolved? Were they, yeah, thank you very much for your interest in aviation safety, but you know what, we got this. Sometimes the answer was yes, and sometimes the answer was no. I'll tell you one of, one of the things, well, for example, we never knew about the O-ring burning. We never knew about it. When that happened, we were completely surprised and completely surprised to find out that it had been an issue and I didn't know that I had burned O-rings until, until the review after the Challenger accident. Uh, another, another issue that we had, uh, it was frequent for us to roll to a stop on the runway from landing. And we put a lot of load into the brakes on, on the space shuttles. I mean, you're talking about a 220,000 pound vehicle touching down at 230 miles an hour and the only thing we had prior to 1992 was those little tiny wheels and tires and brakes. And it wasn't unusual to come to a stop and have pieces of the brakes fall out on the, on the runway next to the wheels because we had destroyed the brakes in one landing. Mm. And I remember complaining about that uh, in, a, in a briefing. And one of the NASA engineers argued with me and said, well, okay, it's not a safety issue. It's just a reusability issue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, don't worry about that. Drag your yeah, feet. And I, I said, okay, I agree with you. It, it's a reusability issue because it's laying there in a bunch of pieces. We're not going to reuse those brakes. But it is a safety issue because if we lock up one side, we're going off that narrow runway at Cape Canaveral at the space shuttle runway, and we're going into the moat that's around it. Mm. Why did, you know, why did we build a moat around our runway? Um, <laughs> that was, a, you know, that was another good question, but I, I don't know that we had any option to remove it. And to this day, it's still there. And then during the course of, you know, your multiple missions, um, I'm sure that not every one of them was a perfect flight. There was always probably something that had transpired that, again, based on what we're always preaching to pilots, uh, John talks about it at the end of our shows uh, every week, and that is, you know, pre-flight planning so that you're prepared for what may occur in flight so that things aren't a surprise. And this is a multi-part question, so I'll, I'll break it up for you. How much went into your pre-flight planning? I know you weren't kicking the tires, you know, on the shuttle and did a pre-flight inspection of it, but there are certain things that you mentally have to be prepared for, physically have to be prepared for, 
before you get on board and, and they fire you off into space. What kind of mental preparation did you do for the shuttle in brevity, but then what relates to how you fly? Because you own a general aviation airplane, you still fly a variety of different airplanes. What have you carried between the two that you think are, are really important points for our audience who are either commercial pilots, because we do have a large contingency of commercial pilots, but we also have a very large contingency of general aviation pilots. And, and we're trying to get them in that same mentality with regard to doing the right thing, even when nobody's looking. Well, there, there, there's a, I guess there's an expression that we can say that you can never do too much training. You can never do too much training. Although, although we had a, we had a funny expression, you know, someone would ask us, well, what was it, what was it like to train for a shuttle mission? And we trained for an entire year for each mission. Mm. So when I first got to NASA, it took five and a half years, four and a half years before I got assigned to my first flight. And we had been training, but also working as an engineer uh, in that four and a half years. So you learned an awful lot about it by working as an engineer, working with, with the engineers, working with the flight designers, uh, working with the testing down at Cape Canaveral. We had astronauts involved in that all the time as well. The turnaround between missions, where, where we replaced components and we tested things to make sure everything still worked. We had all of that. And then you get assigned to a crew and you're gonna train just on that one mission for an entire year. And it was that way every single time. So I'll say you can never have too much training, although towards the end of that one year leading up to launch, we were really running every which direction. We were spending 60 to 70 hours a week in scheduled events mm. training. And we used to kind of jokingly, jokingly refer to it as death by training. <laughs> but I do want to say you can't ever have too much training. And, and, and it, it does pay off because we had anomalies every single time I flew. We never had a single mission. Normally, you didn't have a single day in space without an anomaly. Mm. And my first launch, we didn't have any anomalies during launch, but my second one we did, my third one we did. Let's see, the fourth one, I think we did not have any, but during re-entry, we had issues. And on, on multiple flights, my, uh, let's see, my second flight, my third flight, uh, and my fourth flight, we had issues during re-entry as well. So you are gonna have anomalies. Now, general aviation, we're probably better off than our big complicated space shuttle. And it isn't, it isn't because it wasn't designed properly or built properly or anything like that. It's just that it is so complex mm. and there are so many things uh, that, we, that we don't have in airplanes, regular airplanes. For example, heaters for all the hydraulic lines. We've got to keep the hydraulic lines from freezing, uh, things of that nature. And so there's heaters all over a space shuttle. We've got to keep propellant tanks heated so the hydrazine doesn't freeze, things like that. It is such a complicated beast that there are going to be a bunch of anomalies. So all the training that we do, you know, you're, you're tempted to sometimes, well, we weren't tempted to say it, but sometimes you're tempted to say, oh, come on, is this real life? The answer is yes. This is real life. And, and in listening to you talk about that, I'm, I'm thinking now about how you can equate that to general aviation and to, I won't say a novice pilot, but a general aviation pilot that has a couple hundred, three, four, five hundred hours who has the, uh, the means to buy a TAA or a technically advanced aircraft. They go out they get not only a Cirrus, but then maybe they step up to a TBM 950 or something, you know, higher in caliber. Uh, I, I think there's, there is a similarity because you don't have the experience base and you're getting into a very complex machine that has a lot of system differences. Of course, the avionics are more complex. And I can see that if you really haven't spent the time like you did as far as training and understanding and, and knowing how to troubleshoot, what to recognize, what to react to, uh, 
these guys are going to find themselves in a, in a cone of confusion that's going to lead to a serious incident or accident. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Who would I have a question for you to go back to the training piece? Right. Do they train two crews for each flight? You know, so what happens if, if, if you were the commander and you get sick 30 days before the, the flight? You blow an eardrum out or something, right? Yeah, interesting question, John, and a great question. And and for the first four launches, STS-1 through STS-4, we had a backup crew. Now those were only two-person crews, uh, those flights. So yes, we could we could train a backup crew. After that point, we did not have backup crews, and very seldom did we need to replace one. Because, you know, we astronauts are such perfect physical specimens that, uh, <laughs> uh, that, you well, that one no, we, we did, we did have occasions where we had to replace somebody on a particular launch. But by that point, we had enough trained astronauts that we could grab somebody and generally not miss a beat. We had, we had one astronaut who was, uh, who was going to be a, a pilot. Um, and of course, you know, we called the two pilots on the space shuttle, the commander and the pilot. Hmm. And it just confused everybody because the commander is the pilot in command. The commander is the one that, that makes the landing. But I'm convinced this happened before I joined the space program, but I'm convinced that the reason they were called the commander and the pilot when really they were the commander and the co-pilot Astronauts are such prima donnas, nobody wanted to be called co-pilot. <laughs> so they were called the commander and the pilot. Well, we had a pilot who was training for his second mission and unfortunately was killed. Hmm. And so obviously we had to replace him. He was killed in an airplane crash. We had to replace him and we didn't even have to delay the mission. So, so therefore we had enough, we had enough crews at that point built up to where someone could step right in and uh, and pick up where, 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 where perhaps the other person had left off. Now I'd like to, uh, before, well, pardon ahead. me for a minute, want to follow up with one more training related question. And it's one that's always intrigued me because one of the most public aspects of NASA, even to this day, is the public relations aspect of it. And having joined the uh, Astronaut Corps 1978, this was well before the current generation's immersion in media, where the average 14-year-old not only is into it all the time, they produce their own media, they might even have TikTok videos for all we know. The average person in the 70s and early 80s had zero experience with that. What was your uh, experience with what NASA formally taught you and your experience with what you had to make up on the fly because they're sticking microphones in your face and cameras in your face all the time? You actually, you actually got pretty, oh golly, pretty immune to the cameras. Um, now I sure wasn't initially. Uh, golly, when I had to stand up in front of people and talk, man, my heart would be beating fast and I'd be nervous. And but you very quickly got thrown to the wolves. I guess is the way I'll describe it. Uh, when we first got there, NASA didn't let us do any public appearances at all for the first six months. Uh, they wanted us just to focus on on the training that we were doing, uh, learning about NASA, learning about the space program uh, from, from the very beginning. And, but then after six months, they said, okay, now you're eligible to go out and do public speaking and public talks and appearing on television and all that. So you were, you were somewhat thrown to the wolves. And they said, what we expect out of you is an average of one and a half of those events per month. So you learn, you learn very quickly. And now one of, one of the things that really helped me was my commander, Vance Brand, on my first mission, uh, decided he wanted us to take the executive television workshop. And I remember thinking ahead of time, oh, golly, this is going to be a pain. <laughs> this is going to be embarrassing. Probably one of the best things I ever did, because it, it taught you how to approach these things, how to, how to be effective. Uh, how, how how not to be ineffective and that sort of thing. And so we partially, you got thrown to the wolves. And then the other part of it was 
there was some training available if you if you availed yourself of it. What was your most difficult TV program appearance? Well, you know, sometimes sometimes you you'd have an interview and you thought this was going to be a very gentle interview and this was going to be a fun interview and they were really interested in the space program and then you'd get something broadsided like well what do you have to say to the american taxpayer who's wasting all this money in space and and what are we getting out of it what you know what good is this yeah um you would you would get things like that. The other the other sort of question sometimes that could be a little bit of a challenge was Department of Defense involvement. My my third mission was a top secret flight, and of course when when you tell the press, no, you can't know about this. We are not going to tell you about this. It's just holding a great big sign up in front of them and saying, see what you can find out about this. Yeah. And so the DOD aspects of it sometimes could be challenging. Now, in a regular mission, there was nothing classified. And, and, and we did our darndest just to make sure that there wasn't anything classified. And so transparency, uh, there was plenty of transparency most of the time. But those, those other missions, those could be challenging. Hey, Hoot, I know that uh, I've been fortunate enough uh, to be with you at a couple of venues when you've given your presentation, and I want our audience to see some of the pictures that you have from space and some of the stories because they are fascinating, and there's always a safety benefit to, uh, to what you were talking about. Um, before this slips in my mind, I just want to talk to you. You know, in looking at, um, at the current commercial space um, flights, where you got Bezos and everybody, everybody's in their pretty blue jumpsuits and they all look good. And, and of course, in Virgin, they all had their cool little spacesuits and, and SpaceX. You know, again, the NASA astronaut goes rolling out there in a pressure suit and a helmet. And these folks are just, you know, going up like if uh, they're getting in the car and they're going on a cool ride. Was there any time in NASA's history where they didn't think that an astronaut, because of uh, the structure of the, the rocket itself or the capsule, they didn't need to have that kind of fancy, um, you know, life protection system for an astronaut and they could just get in a, a flight suit like you'd get in, you know, to your T-38 and go fly in a flight suit and that kind of thing and, a, and an oxygen mask. Was there any concern by the astronauts or at least by NASA about that. And, and today, when you look at the size of the windows on Blue Origin and, and those kinds of capsules, I mean, you know as well as I, just flying pressurized aircraft and that kind of stuff, you crack a window or uh, blow a door seal or whatever, I mean, 60,000 feet, you know, you got instant depressurization, if not explosive depressurization. Now you're in the vacuum of space. You don't have time to even think that something just went wrong. Give me your perspective on that, because that kind of concerns me that, yeah, these people look good, but they're not going to look good if they don't come back. Exactly, exactly. And I, my first two flights, that's how I flew. We wore a, a cotton flight suit. We wore a cotton flight suit. We had a helmet that would give us 100% oxygen if we, if we switch that on. Well, and we did when we closed the visor for the first two minutes of launch. Mm -hmm. But we didn't have so much as a lightweight glider parachute that we were wearing. Wow. We, had, we, had, we had some water wings that we wore and a little harness. And I frequently said, why in the world don't we have pressure suits? Why don't we have parachutes? And so it was that way for my first two launches. Now, the first four flights of the space shuttle, the two-person crews were wearing SR-71 pressure suits. So they did have pressure suits. And it was interesting, when I was, when I was chief astronaut, um, I had several crew commanders come to me um, when they were training and come into my office and sit down and say, hey, hey boss, we don't wanna wear the spacesuit for the re-entry. It's hot, it's uncomfortable. After the Challenger accident is when we said, we need to give a capability to bail out from a gliding orbiter. There, there was no way to put in ejection seats and save everybody or a capsule or any of that. But 
we got the Rogers Commission to put into their report that NASA, you need to figure out a way to provide a means of escape from a gliding orbiter. So if you had a problem during launch, yeah, you would have to survive the pullout, get into gliding flight. And if you had lost cabin pressure, you're not gonna be able to bail out unless you've got a pressure suit on. Mm -hmm. So for my three final missions, I had a pressure suit and a parachute. It was heavy, it was uncomfortable, it was hot, stuffy, bulky, and I was thrilled to have it mm. because we were kidding ourselves. NASA's philosophy early in the shuttle program was, this is gonna be the airliner to space. You don't wear a pressure suit or parachutes in an airliner, so we're not gonna need them. This is gonna be routine like the airlines. Well, that, that sure came back and bit us. Well, you know, the three of us, um, you know, besides yourself, knowing time of useful consciousness and the fact that, you know, when you're in a 35,000 foot cabin or in an airplane at 35,000 feet as a passenger on one of the airlines and people go, ah, yeah, it's, you know, environmentally controlled, you know, they bring the cabin up to 6,000 feet. And if I have a drink, I feel a lot better than if I'm at sea level and all that kind of fun stuff. What they don't understand is that if you have a a blowout of a window that you don't just breathe normally. And even if that oxygen mask does drop in a commercial airliner, that's not pressure oxygen. That's not pressure breathing like a crew mask is. So you're not getting oxygen forced into your lungs and just taking a couple of deep breaths isn't gonna get it there either. And so where you have these, this critical situation where you're launching people into space. Now I know they all said, well, it's all controlled by the ground. You don't have astronauts. They aren't pushing buttons. They aren't acting as a functional pilot, if you will, on at least Blue Origin. Um, Virgin is a little different story because they do actually fly that because it, uh, it glides back. But when you look at that kind of, um, and I won't say lack of safety, but is there enough safety forethought going into these programs going forward to ensure that if something catastrophic happens, you've given these passengers and these flight crews all the possible tools to survive a dramatic or a, uh, you know, a very um, uh, catastrophic event. And I'd, and I'd have to say the answer is, I don't know. I don't know if we have given them anything and, and, or if, if there is anything they can do. Now we mentioned a window blowing out. I, I'll tell you when I watched the first Blue Origin launch and the talk was all about how big and enormous this window was, I was nervous because I was thinking, man, oh man, if that, if that thing blows out, they're gone. They're gone so quickly that yeah. they don't have even much chance to think about it. And I don't know what kind of regimen they've put into their pre-flight testing. I would hope that they have pressure tested that thing to about twice what they expect it to see. In other words, a 100% safety factor uh, on top of their design. But I don't know the answer. I, I don't know if, if, if they have done any of that. Last and, question, last question, because I want you to get into your slides, because like I said, you have some some very, you know, cool slides as far as pictures from space. And I know the stories that go with them. Um, do you think that the FAA is equipped to be the overseer of commercial space? Or should there be more of a, um, an interwoven uh, relationship with NASA since they have a lot of rocket <laughs> experience versus the FAA? That's a great question. Maybe, maybe we need to encourage that. Maybe we need to encourage that. Now, like I say, SpaceX, they have had the coordination with NASA. And so they would have uh, the lessons learned and the pitfalls and, and all of those things uh, because NASA wasn't just going to let anybody design a rocket on their own if we're going to put our professional astronauts on it. Uh, NASA is going to have a lot of involvement and a lot of input into it. Maybe. Maybe these other three, uh, I don't know how much input they've had. I don't know how much help they've had with it. But, uh, you know, one of, the, oh, one of the things I meant to mention when I started to mention that one of my commanders would come to me and say, 
we don't want to wear the spacesuit for the reentry. We're just gliding back in. They're just, okay, then after Columbia, they stopped saying that. But I would always answer that. This was before Columbia. I would say, have you forgotten that the Russians lost an entire crew during reentry mm-hmm. when their capsule depressurized? And they lost the entire crew because they were in a shirt sleeves environment. Wow. And so I would always tell my crews, you are to wear your whole pressure suit because I don't want to have to speak at your funeral. Yeah. And that that persisted. That that that's something that uh, that we had going. And then I I think maybe maybe they had eased up on that to some degree because what I've been told was that the Columbia crew, not one of them, had their entire pressure suit on. Wow. And so complacency has a habit of setting in. And uh, another thing that we always said after Challenger was, hey, just because I've been lucky 24 times prior to this launch doesn't mean I'm going to be lucky on this launch. Everyone is the first one. Every launch is the first one. And we need general aviation. We need to treat that the same way. Just because I've been lucky all my life doesn't mean this flight is going to be lucky. Yeah. Boy, I talk all the time about uh, uh, observations that I make at, uh, at an FBO and I get, it's a multi-story building. So I get to sit up on the upper levels and I can watch what everybody's doing out in the ramp. And I can see down into the cockpits of an airplane, especially when I get the ramp guys to position one in a, a spot that we've marked on the ramp. So I'm looking right down. And the, the two things that have popped out and I talk about it constantly is walk arounds where they're walking around like it was a walk in the woods. They're looking up in the sky. They're looking everywhere but at the airplane. So they, satif- they satisfied the FAR that says you're going to walk around the airplane, but they haven't done anything meaningful with that walk around. And, and one of the way, quick ways to figure out that is how many fuel caps are left off, <laughs> right? which is a very, very far too common event. And the other thing I do is when I get that airplane positioned properly, I can sit up in the office and look right down in the cockpit and see if they're doing the checklist by memory or if they got the checklist out. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that considerably more than half of them don't take out the checklist. They run it by memory, right? Memories fail. Good days, you might remember everything. A not so good day, other things going bad, you might forget it. When I worked in the airlines, we dispatched a lot of airplanes that weren't fueled. And that was the last thing on the checklist before you closed the door. And it was also on the checklist for pre-takeoff. But yet we got out with the airplanes not being fueled. So, you know, those checklists are valuable tools. And I just see too many people in GA, uh, uh, corporate and in a 135 corporate that just don't use the checklist. And that's a recipe for disaster. Good, this good speaks point. to this speaks to cultural differences, not just in between aviation and non-aviation, but within aviation itself. And this is a question for you about inside of NASA. In your uh, class, seven, eight, and beyond, there were civilians as well as military. Uh, both uh, in you know, what would you say is the difference in discipline in general and checklists in particular? from someone who had a civilian background, even a high level civilian background as a scientist or, or a medical doctor, as opposed to someone who's former military. Was there a big difference or did you train it, the differences out of them after a year or so? We, great question, Todd. And, and, and the answer is we would train the difference out of it. Now they, the, the ones that came in without the military background, uh, you know, even, even my wife, she wouldn't have been quite as familiar with abiding by a checklist um, ruthlessly and, and religiously. And one of the rules that I came up with when I was mission commander was, if, for example, if we had a malfunction procedure that was going on, two people working it. I want two sets of eyes on it. And you will have the checklist open. It doesn't matter how well you know that procedure. If you ever got caught doing something, number one, either by yourself, when there was somebody else that could have been watching you do it, and and, or doing it without the checklist open in front of you, there was a penalty. You had to buy beer for the whole crew. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, this was in training, of course. And in flight, you know, we had the goal that we were going to go do the entire flight and never miss a single switch. And that's hard to do. That's hard to do. But you had to put some rigor into it if you were going to have any hope of doing it. And so it was checklist open, and I'm referring to it every step of the way, and also two people on every on every uh, action. And especially something irreversible, that if I flip this switch, I can't just flip it back and get that function back. Anything irreversible, I would put my hand on the switch and say, I'm going to flip this switch. Somebody else had to say, I see it and I agree, particularly during launch and re-entry and landing. Uh, and the reason I came up with that rule is because I killed my entire crew in training one time because I was in a big hurry to fix something and I reached over and I grabbed the wrong switch. And I shut down all our engines and we were going into the Atlantic Ocean. This was a launch simulation. I killed my entire crew because I was rushing. And that scared me. Uh, to where I said, holy smokes, how do I prevent this from happening? So the things I just mentioned, uh, two people on every procedure, checklist open, and anything irreversible, get concurrence from somebody else as well. How much of that was inspired or modeled after what was happening in the civilian community at the time, cockpit resource management, crew, crew, resource, re, crew resource management and such? A lot of it, a lot of it, Todd, another great question. Um, because NASA had not had that. Uh, when, we, when we first got going in 1978, I think that was early in this whole process and, and it had not really, I don't know that it had really taken hold in the airlines uh, at that point, maybe that was started, but we did, this, we did that kind of training. We did crew, crew resource, CRM, crew resource management training uh, at NASA to, to emphasize it even even after we had been flying space shuttle flights for years. So I'd like to throw in the, I'd like to bring in this a very specific event. This was the 78 DC-8 uh, fuel outage uh, in Portland, and which was all in the news back then. Was that something that even entered into your, uh, into your mental uh, picture back then? Oh, golly, yes, yes. And, and examples, you know, we've, we've, we've all seen the expression in aviation, learn from other people's mistakes because you won't live long enough to make them all yourself. Mm -hmm. So studying things that have happened before and saying, I'm, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to do that. So that's, that's very important as well. To listen to more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and remember to fly safe.